This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is July 13th, 2023. I'm in Bushfield. Scott's away. Scott's going to be away for a couple weeks. Uh, Maybe we'll have news and we'll tell you what's going on there when he gets back on the show. But for for now, it's just me. But at least today I have a special guest, Derek O'Keefe. I'll introduce him in a sec. He's here to talk to me about thermal coal exports, which he pitched to me on threads. You can follow me there at iBushfield. Uh, and I thought it would be an interesting discussion. We haven't talked much about thermal coal on this podcast, and BC doesn't talk about it much in general. And the you know completely unconnected topic we can use to kick it off is the droughts and wildfires that are spreading across the province. So we'll start there. First, I do have to, as always, ask for money and support to keep this podcast going, patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's get into it. Derek O'Keefe, I would do a formal intro of who you are, but I don't actually know what your role is these days. I know you helped co-founder or co-editor at Ricochet for a while, but what what are you up to these days? Um, yeah, just working, paying the bills and um, parenting and uh, different activist hats I wear, I guess, would include um, I helped found the Democratic Socialists of Vancouver, which is just a membership-based um Socialist group, as the name implies, broadly a broad range of uh, left activists involved in that. So I'm on the steering committee of that group just as a volunteer right now. Um, I'm still on the editorial, or sorry, the board, um, not really in the active editorial work of Ricochet Media, but I'm on the national board um, that keeps that publication going. Um, so it, I, I'm no longer like day to day editing or um, I'm not running for office, uh, <laughs> which, which some of your listeners might remember, although that's, that's been a while now and it was just a run for city council. So I think that hat is like, hopefully people don't think of me forever as that lefty who ran for city council once. Um, but yeah, I'm just back doing, um, doing some journalistic work here and there and, um, just my usual sort of, um, socialist activism and that's that's why i've been stewing and thinking so much about thermal coal um because we have a vibrant climate movement in bc environmental consciousness is very high compared to most other places in the world and yet we have this dirty little secret here that somehow flies under the radar so thank you for uh accepting the pitch via threads um yeah I hadn't been on Twitter for months because I lost access to my Twitter and then it had just gone sideways anyway with Elon Musk. So it was nice to reconnect with you on, on threads. Yeah, even without DMs there, it's still a good place. Uh, not that I'm endorsing no, threads yeah, or the it's not uh, necessarily a billionaire better tech oligarchs running that. Yeah. To start this conversation, I wanted to like bring us to the news, right? Because thermal coal is not really in the news. Metallurgical coal was in the news last year with John Horgan's appointment and we can touch on that. But... The news, like provincially this week, is just the dire situation that's starting to hit the province, both in terms of the wildfires. There are now up to 350 wildfires across the province. David E.B. has called it the worst wildfire season in 100 years, possibly, as we look at the number of fires that are burning right now is almost a record. And we're like halfway through 
So things are pretty bad. Uh, there was a press con- there was a press release out from Bowen Ma and the Ministry of uh, Emergency Preparedness, highlighting that we are at a pretty pretty bad drought situation too. Uh, in terms of droughts, there are five stages or levels to it. Four of our 34 water basins are at level five. That's Fort Nelson, Buckley Lake, West Vancouver Island, and East Vancouver Island. And another 18 uh, water basins are at level four, including the lower mainland where we both are. So save water if you can, (laughs) wherever Uh, they have highlighted taking shorter showers, don't water your lawn, all the, you know, put all of your laundry into one load, run a full dishwasher, these kind of things. They don't amount to much on the individual level, but collective, especially the water, stop watering your lawn, people just full stop. You can water your vegetables, but, and some of your bigger plants, but how, how did you take this news from the minister? Like, obviously the climate news is bad and it's that kind of standard fire season we're at, but I thought it was interesting to see her coming out a bit proactively before we had official restrictions in place. Um, sure. Well, I mean, it, I guess it is noteworthy that this last year is the first time we've had a minister specifically in charge of emergency response, uh, emergency preparedness. And, you know, and the mandate in setting out that ministry was pretty explicit and pretty clear that this was a reaction to the heat dome and then the big flooding in 2021 um, that happened. And a reaction to the realization that this is our reality in British Columbia and the world for the decades to come. Um, there's no more debating uh, whether we have to adapt. Climate, The climate emergency is upon us. Um, so we have to adapt. What's scary about this current moment is if we only adapt and we only deal with the effects of climate disaster and heat, um, that part of the emergency, and essentially give up. Um, on cutting fossil fuels in the rapid way that they have to be cut. Um, and when you see, we see on the one hand, David Eby creating uh, and giving a strong mandate letter to a minister in charge of emergency response. And on the other hand, continuing to subsidize LNG, continuing to allow thermal coal to head out of our ports tax-free, basically uh, carbon tax-free anyway. Um, and, you know, Trans Mountain is being built all this time. That's the federal government, uh, white elephant there, but, $40 billion on the Trans Mountain Pipeline while we're in a drought and while we're in this wildfire season. It's really um, psychically hits you really hard. Like recently, I drove up to the Shushwap uh, to visit family there. And everywhere you go, there's pipeline work sites there for TMX um, all along the route. And of course, if you take Highway 1, you'll go through Lytton, um, which is not, there hasn't been a single thing, single structure rebuilt since Lytton burned to the ground two years ago. So, yeah, it's really harrowing. It's really um, a difficult moment politically where our, even our most responsible uh, elected political um, regimes in <laughs> democratic countries, I guess, like like Canada, are unwilling or unable to break out of the, the fossil fuel stage of capitalism that we're in. And it really is dire. And I think a lot of young people see no future at all. Um, and a lot of people in general have sort of given up on the idea of a long-term, uh, livable situation on the planet. So, so it's a daunting time. And yeah, I mean, it's great that Bowen Ma is advising people to take short showers, don't use a dishwasher, 
I don't have a dishwasher. We don't have a dishwasher in our house, so I always feel morally superior as I'm scrubbing the the dishes there uh, after dinner. No, just kidding. I don't feel morally superior, but uh, I feel bitter. Yeah, um, I was going to no, say, but, I feel uh, like if Scott were here, he'd probably have like some factoid at the back of his mind about how modern dishwashers are probably using yeah. less water than a lot of people who hand wash, especially if you hand wash possibly, a lot. Possibly. I try to do it efficiently. <laughs> no, I don't have any ethical dilemma when washing the dishes. Just something you have to do. But... Um, yeah, at the same time as people are being advised to take these personal actions to conserve water, um, the big fossil fuel export industries and extraction industries are using enormous amounts of water. To say nothing of Nestle bottling water and the golf courses uh, watering their greens. Um, for example, the uh, our topic today, the, the thermal coal port uh, or the coal port, uh, which exports thermal coal as well as steel making coal, um, their source of water there in Roberts Bank is the Delta Municipal Water System. So, um, and there's a, a significant amount of water is needed just to um, to prevent coal dust from spreading into the estuary and into the uh, nearby urban landscape. So they'll be, you know, um, they have big structures to like spray water on the big piles of coal as they await shipments um, out of there. Um, and they're drawing from the same reservoir as the rest of us here in Metro Vancouver, Capilano, Seymour. Um, I think the other one's in Coquitlam out your way. Um, yeah. So that's the situation we're in, right? We're asking people to take individual uh, individual actions to tackle this impossible, daunting collective challenge that we face. But no one seems to be willing to rein in uh, the fossil fuel polluters and the, the real drivers of this crisis, which are the people who are um, profiting off of this uh, this system we have that seems intent on destroying the basis for a livable planet. Yeah, we could talk about all the kinds of things you raised in there. The fact we haven't built anything back in Lytton is just a shameful uh, blight on this province. It's like, I don't even know who's to blame. I haven't looked at the story recently, but it's, I think, another one of those situations of finger pointing where people just need to, someone needs to step up and do something because people need yeah, their and homes I think back. It's and it's partly just that the municipal council couldn't agree how to spend some of the money for rebuilding and what kind of standards would go into it. And part of the reason they couldn't agree is because they're all living in hotels in Kamloops yeah. or, um, you know, in temporary housing elsewhere. It's just really devastating to think that that community will just will just never come back in the way that it, it was before. But I want to pause before we get into the story of thermal coal today and just take like a very brief second and kind of go back through the history of coal mining, which is a very deep history in British Columbia. Uh, and I'm going to reference Shannon Riley's 2021 piece from the Narwhal, which it kind of looks at a comparative, like, why is coal mining different in BC than it is in Alberta? And this story really, and I'll put a link in the show notes, uh, goes through the history of the two provinces, which was very similar with the like kind of stereotypical deep coal mining that you imagine from all the history books where people went into the mines and uh, the Derek Zoolander kind of situation of coal mining that existed from the 1800s till the, you know, mid 20th century. And then it was actually under Peter Lougheed, premier of Alberta, who decided in 1976 to bring in a new environmental coal policy, basically banning open coal mining in the Rockies of Alberta. And this is something BC never did. So, you know, jump forward a number of years and Jason Kenney runs into political hot water because he talks about opening some coal mines on the eastern slopes of the Rockies. And there's a massive outpouring of uh, vitriol and anger at him because Albertans love their mountains. They only have a few 
and we have lots. So here in BC, we, especially under Bill Bennett in the 70s and 80s, really just went full tilt on mining. Uh, there's a fascinating image in this narwhal piece of when they tried to issue shares for the BC Resource Investment Corporation. Every British Columbian was able to get free shares in this company that, you know, we would all be coal miner owners in the end. Uh, that didn't pan out, unfortunately. That was kind of a weird bit of historical trivia I read. Um, but yeah, now we're in this situation where BC is producing, I think, something like 50% of the coal that's mined in Canada is mined in BC, and that is used 95% for metallurgical coal. That is the stuff to make steel, and some of that gets exported, some of that gets used in British Columbia, and that small little bit of thermal coal is either burned in Alberta or overseas. But what's also come up, and I think this is what you really want to get into, and this has been an issue in the past, and then it just kind of gets forgotten about is that, and you mentioned it a couple times already, is a lot of thermal coal is coming through BC to go to foreign markets through our ports. So let's let's start with that, Derek, and maybe just kind of explain, like, where is this coming from? Where is it going? Yeah, well, we can start the story at uh, Robert's Bank, um, which is um, Delta Port, essentially, where the um, current uh, spur line from the railways there's go, goes out. When you take a ferry, you look across, uh, take a ferry from Sawasan, when you look across, you can see the coal ports there and you can uh, see the big piles of coal um, next to, or essentially on the same jetty there, the same peninsula um, where there's big container um, terminals already. Uh, this is West Shore Terminals. Um, and actually the history of West Shore Terminals and the coal port there on Roberts Bank goes back to um, the uh, BC uh, Investment and Resource Corporation, I think uh, was the acronym. And uh, it goes to the sort of um, staggered privatization, the various iterations of that um, sort of sputtered along after Bill Bennett's uh, stunt there of giving everyone a share. Uh, and by the 1990s, um, Jim Pattison was able to essentially uh, take control of uh, one of the subsidiaries that had become WeStar Investing or WeStar Mining, WestStar, WestStar. Um, anyway, it was essentially fully privatized by the end of the 1990s and Jim Pattison uh, and his group of companies um, obtained full control by the, uh, by the late 90s. And they've been exporting coal um, both from BC, uh, a lot of it from tech and the, the mines in the, in the Kootenays along the Alberta borders and on the Elk Valley uh, coal mines. Um, and actually, just a side note, the, the fire that burned Lytton to the ground started 18 minutes after a coal train um, ran through Lytton. Uh, and this is on a day when it was like 48, 49 degrees Celsius. You shouldn't be running coal, any trains at all, and certainly not at high speed and with something like coal being transported. Um, the Transport Board of Canada was did not find that the train... Um, caused the fire, did not find evidence of it, but that um, there is a lawsuit underway uh, involving the rail companies and, and whatnot, um, seeking um, seeking redress for what many people believe is the cause of the Lytton fire. So that's the allegation there. And the investigation did find that the fire, fire started within five feet of the rail lines there that go through um, Lytton. So just a side note that it was a coal train maybe coming from the Elk Valley, I'm not sure, but you know, that is their route. Um, headed towards uh, the coast for shipment. 
that started that uh, that that passed through right before that fire started in Lytton. Um, but back to the issue here. So coal has been exported from uh, Delta Port for decades, or from Roberts Bank for decades. Jim Pattison's group has is the largest shareholder of um, West Shore Terminals. Uh, so two things really got me interested in this story. The first was when John Horgan took his uh, corporate job on his last day as an MLA. They there was a story in the Globe and Mail saying, you know, John Horgan has accepted a position on the board of directors of this new spinoff of um, of tech, uh, which was called Elk Valley Resources, which I think ended up not spinning off and not rebranding um, because of corporate uh, machinations and uh, disputes. They're a takeover threat from another big coal, coal company. Anyway, it doesn't matter. John Horgan takes this position. And in the media exclusive that he gave to the Globe and Mail, he kind of went out of his way to say, well, this is metallurgical coal. This is steel making coal. I'm not I'm not involved in that thermal coal business or whatever. And so immediately this just uh, sort of got my mind going because I've been noticing that uh, thermal coal exports had been increasing a lot during the five years of the John Horgan um, government. And this last year in 2022, they set basically the the high watermark for coal, thermal coal exports, uh, 16 million tons of thermal coal was exported, and that represented 68% of all the coal exported from West Shore Terminals there at Roberts Bank. And as you say, most of that um, is coal coming from the United States, specifically from Montana uh, and Wyoming. Most of it in Wyoming, a little bit in Montana. It's called the Powder River Basin. It's the world's largest coal deposits, uh, the largest coal fields in the United States, even bigger than all of Appalachia, bigger than uh, you know Virginia, other places you think of mm -hmm. as coal country. In the states, um, and it was a big thing of Trump's actually to uh, to revoke a lot of measures that the Obama administration had taken prior to 2016 um, to stop uh, because a lot of this coal is uh, on the coal mines are on federal lands, so the the companies are just leasing it from the U.S. federal government. Um, and Trump, uh, one of his big things uh, to to win support in coal country. Uh, was to stop moratoriums on leases for coal companies on federal lands. Um, so a big part of the reason that coal has continued to flow from the United States to um, BC over the last five, six years and actually increase in, um, in the amount exported uh, has been related to U.S. politics, obviously also related to just general geopolitics and the commodities boom uh, around fossil fuels in general. So the price of coal has kept that business profitable. And um, so, yeah, in the same year that Horgan took the job with the steelmaking company, uh, the same uh, year uh, was also the record-setting year for thermal coal, um, uh, thermal coal going out at Delta Port. But yeah, the the Horgan thing was really interesting because it never seemed to come up um, in the media coverage uh, that under Horgan's watch, thermal coal had uh, had increased quite dramatically. Uh, you know, for the previous decade, prior to 2021. For a whole decade, their steel-making coal had been by far the majority, uh, well over 50% every year of the exports from uh, from West Shore Terminals, and it switched. And in their latest annual information form that they give out to shareholders, the company says that for the, quote, foreseeable future, they believe thermal coal exports will be their main um main type of coal being exported. And the other the other element there is that they they say in their corporate documents that they've they have contracts that go as far ahead as 2035 
with some of these cool shipping companies from the States uh, to ship to Asia. Some of the countries this is going to are Japan, South Korea, China, obviously still a voracious energy market there. I think Japan is by quite a margin number one, though, um, of the coal leaving West Shore terminals. But so they have long-term contracts going beyond 2035, and that's significant because the federal government under the Liberals has said that they aim to phase out thermal coal exports from Canada no later than 2030. And we all know how Liberal promises the, the uh, you know, yardsticks will continue to move. And obviously the coal companies uh, are counting on that. But it's significant that the contracts uh, of West Shore terminals extend beyond Canadian federal policy phasing out thermal coal. And, you know, there's almost no mention of that in, in all of their corporate documents. They seem very confident this is a long-term business. Um, and I guess the, the final point that has me thinking about all this is that the, the coal port is owned by the richest person in British Columbia, uh, Jim Pattison, who is now worth somewhere around like $14 billion Canadian, I think. Uh, you know, Forbes keeps a daily tab on these things. People can go check, but it's well over uh, 11 billion US and whatever that converts to in Canadian dollars. Jim Pattison's wealth has more than doubled since the start of the pandemic in 2020. Um, so you have the richest person in the province owns the dirty, dirtiest fossil fuel. That's the other thing for people who don't know the um, the sort of climate uh, impact of, of burning a, a kilogram or uh, whatever unit you want to take of coal, um, the amount of CO2 released is greater than so-called natural gas, methane, um, or most most kinds of standard um, oil, petroleum, uh, hydrocarbons in general. Uh, coal tends to be dirtier in terms of its carbon emissions. Uh, I think James Hansen, the NASA scientist, said it's the single greatest threat to civilization and all life on the planet. That's how uh, NASA climate scientists, now a professor of climate uh, studies at Columbia University, that's how he has described coal. And this is sort of general consensus in the environmental movement and even at policy levels of most governments in Europe and North America, uh, you know, aside from Trump's and, and characters like that, recognize the threat of coal. And yet here you have, it's been carried on all this, all these years when the NDP was in power, thanks to a confidence and supply agreement with the Green Party. Uh, was increasing its thermal coal exports and seemingly no one paid attention. Yeah, there's uh, a lot. There's so much going on here, right? Because like I'm looking at some data from the federal government and they're flagging that like, especially in the last two years, there's been a wild sharp jump in the price of thermal metallurgical coal. Uh, and, you know, this is you talked about the record uh, exports and in a way, that's a big driver of BC's recent big surpluses that David Eby got to spend. And so like the dirty little speak secret here comes in as here's the extra money you get to spend. Let's not talk about exactly how we got it. It's on the back of resource royalties, some of which we uh, are probably more shameful of because like you say, coal is dirty and it's pretty widely acknowledged. Like I've there's, I think I saw like jokes a couple of years ago or in the Trump era of like, we're going to release clean coal and almost everyone immediately laughed at them because that doesn't make the same kind of sense as like any other fossil fuel you could make a better argument at. But like when we talk about, yeah, and when we talk about natural gas, we're trying to like displace Yeah, and coal. I don't obviously, no, I mean, all, mm-hmm. Well, that's always the talking point. That's exactly what I was going to say. Whenever they justify LNG exports to Asia uh, from BC and sort of 
in making these massive generational investments in LNG infrastructure, it's always about what well, we have to get China and uh, the other Asian markets off of coal. And meanwhile, you're your supply, you're your, the conduit for more and more of this kind of really dirty coal going to those markets. So, um, yeah, it's just it flies under the radar. And to me, that it, it's sort of part of it is indicative of Jim Pattison, uh, his incredible ability to never receive critical media coverage or scrutiny and quite the opposite uh, to receive like fawning press coverage whenever he appears in the media. And uh, like in the recent years, there's been a series of stories, obviously like pitched from the Jim Pattison group. Uh, by the way, the guy's like turning 95 now, but he just continues to expand his holdings and his corporate empire. He goes to work every day famously. There's every couple of years or every couple, uh, you know, yeah, every every year at least, there's one media story in a major outlet talking about how Jim Pattison now believes in environmental issues. And there's quotes from him in CBC a couple of years ago. There was a story saying every time we buy a company, we look at the environmental impact and that that's front and center. Um, and that CBC story was quite funny. They talk about how on his wall in his office, he has photos with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, but also David Suzuki. And, uh, you know, Patterson talks about how Suzuki tried to convince him back in the 80s about climate change. But now, finally, he's he's come around to it. Uh, and, he, and, you know, it's central to all his investment decisions. At the same time, he continues month after month to expand his holdings uh, in the, these coal exports. In June, Patterson bought another $15 million of his own shares. He's already the largest shareholder, controls the board effectively, um, you know, controls the management of the, the coal port. It's his coal port. Uh, but he, he went and acquired another $15 million worth of shares just in June. Um, so... Clearly, his uh, his investment moves contradict everything he's saying on climate, but somehow there is just never critical media stories looking into the richest person in in the province. I this is maybe going too far, but I often think like it's as if British Columbia was Springfield, but nobody talked about Mr. Burns. <laughs> Like you just paid no attention to it at all, or like oh, I mean, every once in a while we name something after him. Yeah, no, it's true. He gets his hospital wings for sure. But like, even Mr. Burns isn't wasn't like the founder of a school where they give preferential entry to uh, families who speak in tongues uh, because they're evangelical beliefs. Like he literally founded a school, one of the largest private schools in the province. Uh, that gives preferential entry. It says on their website, if you speak in tongues at home. That's Pacific Academy, right? Pacific Academy in Surrey. And, you know, fine, that's a whole other issue, funding of independent schools. But like, there are various angles. And in the past, he's he also has a sort of quasi-monopoly of the billboards in the province. Uh, and in the past, he has like, there's been controversy because he's disallowed or that his company has taken down billboards uh, addressing climate change. Now, things like that happened as recently as 10 years ago. And yet these stories appear that he's, he's found uh, he's, he's discovered that climate change is real and is really concerned about it. Well, let's bring it to the policy angle of this. Like we talk about the amount of American coal coming through Vancouver uh, and, you know, the Richmond and the Delta ports. Why? Right. Because that's kind of the obvious question we have to point out is America has lots of ports. Why do they need to use ours? And I kind of know the answer, but Mm. I'm going to let you tell it. Yeah, well, basically no one has let them. So the coal is coming along the uh, 
BNSF Railway from Wyoming and Montana towards the West Coast. The obvious place to export it would be Oregon and Washington. Um, but there have been five or six uh, at least attempts to build new coal terminals uh, in various places along the Pacific Northwest, Cascadia region of the U.S., um, even California. There have been some attempts that have all failed because of local environmental concerns, uh, because of tribal rights, as, as they would call indigenous rights in the United States. I think that played a big role in the um, uh, Cherry Point uh, and some of the other attempts to build new terminals in the United States, close to us, um, in the area between here and, and Bellingham. Um, fishing rights of the Lomi and other First Nations um, were a big thing. So for whatever reason, they have not been able to get a local jurisdiction to build a new coal port in Oregon and Washington that can uh, that has the equipment to do this or the capacity to do this. Um, so they come... They have to come up the coast through through Canada. You can go see these coal trains that are going every day through Bellingham, Washington. If you stop there and walk, they have beautiful boardwalk, beautiful seawall type walks in Bellingham. And every once in a while, these big, loud, obnoxious, uh, long coal trains come by um, there. So they're still going through those communities, but none of them would let them build a port to, to export it. Um, and so this is the ridiculous part in terms of policy, a simple policy uh, it's essentially a loophole around BC and Alberta's carbon taxes. The fact that they only travel, the trains that export this coal from the United States only travel about 40 kilometers in British Columbia. Uh, and a lot of the carbon tax is calculated on the um, distance traveled. So you're really, these companies are paying tax on the, the fossil fuels used in exporting it. They're not paying a tax on the eventual burning of the, of the coal. They're not paying a penalty financially for the eventual burning of the coal in a Japanese power plant um, or what have you. Um, they're paying for the distance traveled. So if this tech is shipping its uh, coal to port from the Elk Valley, they're going like, I don't know, somewhere close to 2,000 kilometers or like 1,500 kilometers and paying a tax on that. Or from Northwest BC, the coal mines there that go to Prince Rupert, they're paying a significant carbon tax. Uh, but the coal that comes from the United States pays almost no carbon tax. Um, they have to pay a little bit of tax for like the diesel fuel that they use uh, to like move dirt around on Roberts Bank. They, they pay like a carbon tax for these little uses of fossil fuels. But essentially you have the largest and this is the largest coal export facility on the west coast of the Western Hemisphere. There's nothing in California, Mexico's, all of South America comparable to this. So this is a huge gateway to all the Asian markets for thermal coal. Um, and they're paying effectively no carbon tax. And they brag about that in their, in their corporate documents as well. Uh, obviously, why wouldn't they? It's, uh, it's why it's such a profitable investment, and it's why the largest shareholder keeps expanding his, his share, shareholdings. Well, and this also has you know impacts beyond just the coal port and the railway along there. It takes big container ships to move this coal out, and that means we've seen an increase in tankers and cargo ships in the Salish Sea and lining up there. Uh, I'm looking at one article talking about how many of them are just backing up all the way across the bay pretty much uh, encroaching on the Gulf Islands, just running their generators 24-7. Well, uh, and this is the case for building the Roberts Bank Terminal 2, the, the massive expansion that is currently before provincial uh, government, essentially, the feds have already approved this massive expansion of the um, container port there at Delta Port, 
which is uh, adjacent to the the coal terminal. Um, but yeah, there's only a limited amount of uh, highway and rail to, to ship all the different cargo out, whether it's coal um, or everything else that comes through there. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely related to the um, the whole global system of uh, the, the, every time it's a supply, you know, all the talk of supply chains is chain issues is uh, you can't separate it from this uh, global globalized capitalism um, that we now we now live under. There are all these huge environmental costs, and I, I think the federal government is what faced a huge dilemma around that approval of the um, Roberts Bank Terminal too, because um, you know you you have the federal government supposedly committed to biodiversity and um, protection of all protection of all these at risk species and the salmon um, that depend on that part of Roberts Bank, which of course is very close to the Fraser River estuary, a uh, huge salmon, salmon river. Um, yeah, they faced a huge dilemma, but of course they sided with economic growth and the, the needs of global capital. Um, yeah. So these issues are all interrelated. And the other thing I want to say in terms of policy, the other thing that makes this story so bitter, bitterly hilarious is that it was actually Christy Clark who made a last ditched uh, environmental policy announcement in the 2017 election campaign. Uh, and she said, uh, partly in response to Trump um, bringing in new softwood lumber tariffs, so partly in related to early Trump administration trade wars, um, she wrote a letter to the federal government saying they should ban thermal coal now. In other words, shut down Roberts Bank thermal coal exports entirely. And if the feds didn't do it, Christy Clark went further and proposed specific provincial policy that would apply a carbon levy. Um on uh, I think of like $70 a ton, which at the time was way more than the carbon tax. So it was like, and she said, Christy Clark, here I am quoting Christy Clark. uh, She said the tax is designed to make it uneconomical and to kill this industry entirely. Now, whether she would have carried through on any follow through on any of that, of course, is highly suspect. Jim Pattison continued to buy shares. So Christy Clark made that announcement with like a week to go in the election campaign in 2017. The share price plummets, of course, predictably. But after it plummets, none other than the largest shareholders buying up more of the shares. So, you know, he's whether he had inside information or not, that's not an allegation I'm going to make on this. Uh, put your podcast at risk. But, uh, you know, a, a savvy political observer would say Christy Clark probably isn't going to follow through on that. It's just a little saber rattling in political theater. But it's wild to me that like a the BC Liberal government that had such a disastrous environmental record in many ways on many files um, made that campaign promise. And then what ended up happening was a green balance of power situation with the NDP and the Greens um in government and then nobody ever talked about the thermal coal issue again no no one yeah I don't that's where sitting Andrew in the back Weaver of my bringing memory. it up maybe there were a couple cases where the green the small green caucus brought it up but it doesn't seem to have figured in the negotiations for the NDP green agreement as far as i can tell like that would have been a natural thing to negotiate um if if you're the greens and you felt strongly that thermal coal needed to end you could have made that a condition of your support for the BCNDP government. So I, I don't know why the issue disappeared entirely. How much is is relational? Uh, of course, West Shore Terminals uh, has Glenn Clark, former NDP premier, on its board of directors and has had has had him there for a decade. And he just retired as Pattison's. I think he rose to like chief operating officer of the Jim Pattison group. So he was high up in Pattison's business empire that, that certainly would have helped, um, 
keep it out of the NDP's uh, sights, but I, I just, I can't believe the issue disappeared and that the last politician to advocate for it seriously was Christy Clark. And I can't yeah, believe that's that what I, I was kind of like vaguely thinking said kind things about Christy Clark's uh, political advocacy on a, a public uh, <laughs> forum. Yeah. So there we go. See, we're a balanced podcast. We try to make sure we respect all sides of the issues. You're a very so evidence-based person. I know even when you bring on a wild lefty like me, I end up talking about Christy Clark's policy proposals. <laughs> so. But yeah, I do vaguely remember that announcement. And that's why this was kind of in the back of my mind as a fascinating topic to come on. And like, as I was trying to do a bit of research to make sure we could talk about this thoroughly, like, you're right, it it comes up every six months to a year in the news, or there's like a little story every two years. And it's largely, you know, oh, exports are up. Hey, look at this, BC is making a bunch of money off of this as part of its export uh, fees, and so forth, or it represents this uh, portion of our um, export capacity. One thing I found interesting is Statistics Canada doesn't actually collect data on how much thermal coal we're exporting. They, uh, one of the things I read said they treat that as sharehold, private shareholder information that could harm economic uh, interests of certain companies. Uh, and so a lot of it's estimated off others. That's wild. Well, I mean, I'm getting my, I get my numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting my numbers off of their own corporate reports to their shareholders. Um, but that's that's quite wild and interesting that Stats Canada wouldn't be tracking that. But I mean, from a policy perspective and a resource revenue perspective, even even it's so lucrative right now. Like the profit margins are so high. The dividends to shareholders are significant. Um, and this is the only port that can really export this. The world's These are the world's largest coal mines, largest coal pod, the U.S.'s hub of their coal industry. And we're kind of the only way out, even if you wanted to apply a levy that would not kill the industry. Why wouldn't you, as a smart politician, apply a levy to at least make the polluter pay a little bit so that there could be even more in the provincial coffers? Like, I feel like just the idea that a government... And, and as neither the producer of the coal or the... And as neither the producer of the coal or the consumer of the coal, BC can tax it without harming British Columbians at all. Right. Yeah. No one's heating bill is going up uh, in British Columbia. Yeah. It, it seems like um, straightforward populist politics that this would be this would be good politics to do this. Of course, I think the ethical thing and the right thing to do would be to shut down the industry entirely, um, as the feds have said they're going to do in the next six and a half years. Like when governments make these big promises around climate change, that they're going to do something by 2030, you have to start acting on that right away. Like six and a half years is not, is not a, it's a long, it's mm-hmm. a government and a half. Um, so if you actually mean that you have to start and you have to, as a government, as a federal government that's promised that they should be sending real signals, um, to these investors and these companies, like this is not, it, it should not make sense for these companies to be signing contracts through 2035 if the feds actually intend to ban this by 2030. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's, and just to get back to how you started the show, like with the wildfires and it wasn't just, it's not a BC issue. Like this is a global issue. We had the, at the start of July, we supposedly had the five or six of the hottest days in, in recorded history. Um, there's heat waves all over Europe, all over different parts of the world. We had the extraordinary heat dome two years ago, which is going to become the norm, um, unfortunately, um, we're very far along on this issue. Like, 
so as I said it at the beginning, it, it I'm I'm happy to come on and talk about this, um, just for my own sanity and and well being to like, okay, like there is at least some venue to discuss this because I feel like we should be having a really serious society wide conversation about all of these things. Like, cause it has to be, it can't just be targeting one industry, um, or one jurisdiction. It has to be like a serious across the board, um, conversation. It just makes no sense that like, you know, take short showers because we we're in a drought and this is going to be the new reality, but don't, don't debate the, uh, municipal water supply being used to keep the coal from blowing around that we're, that we're shipping off. Um, yeah. So we're really, uh, yeah, we're really, we're really far into this and it's a scary time. And, um, I might not be articulating that very coherently, but I appreciate the chance to, uh, to talk about this. No, I think this has been great. And I think we'll wrap it up there. I mean, my concluding thought is just like, whether we make it more expensive or cancel it entirely as an export product from our ports that pushes and pushes the incentive onto those companies that are or those countries that are using this thermal coal whether it's china or south korea or japan to really move faster with their own energy transitions like we've seen in canada some of our biggest cuts in global in greenhouse gas emissions in ontario and alberta have been when the liberal and ndp governments in those provinces moved to stop burning coal and whether they even just went to natural gas or they went to renewables, it made major cuts in emissions. Like the easy win is getting coal out of the system. A lot of the other stuff we're doing here in BC is hard in terms of, you know, redoing home heating and all of that kind of stuff. But just stop burning the most dirty fuel yeah, and on we the can, planet and stop others And from we doing can start it. to think about like actually building out passenger rail in North America rather than having these lucrative rail, old rail lines uh, transporting coal. Like, a ton of coal can get to Bellingham and Washington State really quickly. Uh, but you try to take a train to Seattle or to Portland, it takes you twice as long as driving, and you're, like, shuttling on a bus. Like, we don't have the basic uh, infrastructure we need to be moving people around, but we can we can move these devastating extractive industries uh, industrial products around and really just antiquated stuff. And the last point I want to make, I know you're trying to wrap up, but this is such an obvious issue where the environmental movement could collaborate more with the groups in the United States. Like, you know, who else is really against the coal exports through BC is like Montana ranchers and indigenous groups in the United States. And they're not that far away. Like Jim Dutton is on your side on this issue. Uh, like this would be an obvious way to collaborate, um, and to build bridges with people in the United States who are also trying to stop these destructive policies. Um, so yeah, I just had to, I, I meant to, to talk about that earlier as well, because, um, yeah, in many ways the, there's a stronger environmental movement in Washington state, at least when I read stuff about what's happening down there, but if we could collaborate just a little bit more across the border, I think on this issue and others, we would uh, have a lot more policy wins. Derek, if people want to collaborate with you, how should they find you on the internet if you're at all active these days? Oh my gosh. I used to be able to just say Twitter. Well, people should actually be, people should go to ricochet.media and just support all the independent outlets that are out there. Yeah. Don't worry about following me. I'm trying to sound off less as an individual these days and just contribute, contribute to bigger projects. 
people should check out uh, Ricochet Media, the Narwhal, which you mentioned. Subscribe to the Taiyi. Um, you know, there's so there's so many now. There's like kind of a nice, um, still way too small, but a, a significant um, independent media um, uh, universe or, or uh, sector uh, because the rest of the media is dying. And you know, we recently had the the threat of Toronto Star merging with uh, the Post Media empire and and that's a horror story that didn't quite happen but you know it's all it's all dying the traditional media so we really need solid sources of information and yeah i i wouldn't worry about connecting with me on the internet but please like subscribe to and and donate uh give a monthly contribution if you're able to some of these outlets and including local political podcasts like at every every uh bit of this new media infrastructure we can build and sustain is really important and no one, no one, whether or not uh, the nonprofit types uh, like myself, uh, things like Ricochet and the Narwhal, uh, nor I would say sort of the new capitalist ventures in media have figured out a way to provide the daily news and solid news that, that people used to be able to access. So, yeah, I would really strongly encourage people to put a little bit of their money when they can into building up independent media outlets and, and lo- especially local local politics and and uh things like your show that's that actually give a bit of in-depth coverage on provincial uh politics that people just can't find anymore in the way they used to absolutely thank you for that derek and yeah i guess i'll see you on the internet all right well thank you ian and that has been playtoast find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca support the show and get access to our slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Palatoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>